Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host. And on today's podcast, we're going to do something a little bit different. Today and over the next few days, you'll hear from us in shorter episodes where we tackle one topic at a time. Now, I've been listening to more of these daily podcasts, shows like Vox's Today Explained or New York Times The Daily, and I've kind of liked this format where you get to spend 20 minutes or so with the hosts, and then you get to get on and tackle the rest of your day. So we thought we would try that out with y'all. So let us know what you think of this new format. We might call it Peach Bites, or that might be a terrible name, and you might have a better one for us. If you have a name idea for us, tweet at us at at PeachPodGA on Twitter, or email us peachpod.podcast at gmail.com. On today's podcast, you're going to hear from Luke and Megan, but we are also excited to welcome one of our fantastic new interns for her debut on the show. Her name is Natalie Spire, and she's joining us to tackle a Georgia angle on last week's off-year elections. So let's go ahead and dive in here. And I know you all missed elections. We're only now just under a year away from the 2020 elections, but we have some elections for you this week. States with off-year races held their elections on Tuesday, with the biggest surprise being Democrat Andy Bashir's victory over Kentucky Governor Matt Bevin in a state that Trump won by 30 points. Democrats also had a good night in Virginia, taking control of the state government for the first time in over two decades, but they were disappointed by a poor performance in another long-shot governor's race in Mississippi. So let's take a look at these races and what they can teach us about the political environment, both nationally and here in Georgia as we race for 2020. And Natalie, I think you're the best person to start us off with this. I know I hit the high notes in the beginning here, but can you give us just a little bit more about what all went down in these elections on Tuesday night? Yeah, sure. So starting in Virginia, um, there's a lot of talk about Virginia now being officially a blue state, which if you're a Democrat, that's exciting. It's been kind of a long-term shift over 10 years of Virginia slowly becoming more blue. Um, The governor is a Democrat, and now the state legislature is controlled by Democrats. So it's exciting for progressives um, and implementing some new policies, redistricting Virginia so that possibly Democrats can win again, and implementing policies like gun control, possibly um, greenlighting the ERA in Virginia, which would mean that there's enough states to pass it and add it to the um, United States Constitution. And then in Kentucky, uh, Matt Bevin lost the incumbent and Andy Bashir, who is a kind of establishment, Kentucky, white, moderate, but he won. And yeah, so that's pretty much what happened. Great. So I want to get into some of the policies that Virginia Democrats, now that they've taken over full control of the legislature, they've got trifecta control of that state now. I want to get into some of those here in a minute. But Luke, let's start with you. Taking a 30,000-foot view across the victory for Democrats in Kentucky, Democratic takeover in Virginia, Democratic disappointment down in Mississippi, are there any broad lessons for Democrats' chances in 2020 in the South or nationally that you took from the elections on Tuesday night? Yeah, I would say there are two things that 
you can take from these elections that really apply across the country. The first thing is that organizing works. In Kentucky and Virginia, there was a lot of organization. Uh, you know, Andy Bashar had a really good organization and a good campaign, and they were in a position to, you know, take advantage of their situation, which I'm going to get into more in a second. And then in Virginia, I mean, as uh, Natalie mentioned, I mean, Virginia has been a, a long effort. It's not like Virginia just, you know, they woke up one day and they're now blue. You know, it's like, no, they've been winning statewide races for a while as, you know, the Democratic Party. And slowly but surely, there's been a trickle down to the lower offices where uh, the Democratic Party has been doing better and they've been slowly but surely picking up seats in both the state house in the state senate and so this is just a culmination of years and years of work really since like 2006 ish that has led to virginia being seen as a you know very close to blue if not blue state um and i i think that that is a huge huge takeaway because both those states had that element the other thing is and this is you know a little tongue-in-cheek but it is true like it really helps to run against someone who's really unpopular <laughs> like that is a huge huge benefit because uh the I'll, I'll hit the lighter example first in virginia the state legislature was not super popular i mean they had done a bunch of things that uh just was not not popular i mean it's, it's really just that simpler it's simple and in, in their opposition to uh some of the things that their you know democratic statewide elected officials are going to do that was popular the republicans just really weren't working with them this is not a you know kind of like reverse situation with like massachusetts and charlie baker where you have split party control but they work great together and it's super popular virginia was kind of the opposite then in kentucky matt bevan went out of his way to piss people off both in the Democratic <laughs> Party but also like Republicans. There was plenty of Republicans both elected and just uh, in the state that didn't like him. The other thing Matt Bevan did that I think really hurt him uh, that's kind of relevant to other elections is that Kentucky was this very strange state that, you know, it is considered a red state. You know, Mitch McConnell, the boogeyman of Democrats everywhere is from Kentucky. <laughs> But they also had expanded Medicaid, and not only have they expanded Medicaid, they have made they made their own st exchange system called Connect that was incredibly popular, and people really liked it. And Matt Bevan, for some godforsaken reason, decided that like one of the big things he was going to do was to destroy an incredibly popular program in Kentucky, uh, because that's what national Republicans do. And so I, I think what you're seeing is that like political gravity still exists and that if you are unpopular or you do unpopular things, especially if you do both of those things, it will hurt you. And the reason why I think that's relevant is Democrats did not sweep Kentucky. We took the governorship, but the other Republican Sorry, the other races all went to Republicans. So it's not like this was some national politics, you know, Democratic wave. It was really a referendum on Matt Bevin sucking. Megan, one comparison that struck me looking at the results on Tuesday night has been this debate that Democrats in Georgia have been having about whether or not the future for progressives in the Democratic Party in Georgia is to focus on diverse, young, purely progressive candidates and to sort of take a step away from the moderate candidates that in Georgia have typically been tied to legacy names, uh, people like Jason Carter and Michelle Nunn, who are both 
related to very successful Georgia politicians, but politicians from a prior era. We've had that debate back and forth, but it struck me that in Kentucky, a state that is somewhat different than Georgia, but is also a relatively Southern state, the upset in a very red state happened because a somewhat moderate legacy name candidate, the son of the former governor, Steve Brashear, Andy Bashir won that race. Do you have any reactions to seeing the Bashir name take over that governorship again and, and how that impacts the way Georgia Democrats might absorb that result in this kind of debate? I do. I think that I think that going stepwise actually makes people feel more comfortable. And one of the things that as a, as a party, I believe the Democratic Party is kind of doing a disservice to the moderates in the party by only focusing on the super progressive values. Because while those are the, they're very important, don't get me wrong, but they're the big ticket items. They're the ones that hit the headlines. They're the ones that everybody wants to talk about. Whereas when you get moderates in there, they're kind of dull by comparison. But ignoring them does a disservice to the party. It does a disservice to moderates. And I also think that if you're going to swing some votes, if you're going to swing Republicans over, then you have to start with a palatable candidate. You have to start with somebody that can possibly say, okay, well, we disagree on these three, but these major issues that you really care about, we actually agree on. And, you know, that these candidates can also more easily cross the aisle. They can more easily come to those compromises, whereas people with much stronger beliefs to one side or the other of the spectrum have a bit of a harder time doing that, just from a logistics perspective and just from a perspective of, you know, that's a lot of ground to give. So I wouldn't mind in Georgia if we supported some more moderate candidates. I do want to see progressive candidates make it through. I want to see those progressive candidates get their voice. But I think that focusing solely on those candidates loses us elections in the middle where we could flip them and just aren't giving them the effort. So I, I would contrast this just a little bit. So the the first thing I would say is as far as like legacy or not legacy, I think legacy can matter. I, I think there's like maybe maybe there's like two criteria. One's like the size of your name. Like if you're a Kennedy and you run anywhere and you're like actually related to the Kennedys, like that's always going to be a thing. Like it's always going to matter. You're going to get a bump because of that. But the, the other thing I think is like how your legacy, yes, but like how ancient is that legacy? Because when we're talking about Sam Nunn for, you know, compared to Michelle Nunn, like he was not a the last time he was actually in elected office in the state of Georgia was 1995. Uh, and that's a long time ago. And then, you know, Jimmy Carter, sure, he was president, but he was president in the 70s. Uh, you know, his term ending in the 80s. So like, that's, that's a significant distance. Uh, and, you know, people might remember uh, you know, Carter as president or even Carter as governor and Nunn as senator, but like how well do you actually remember it? How much has the political climate changed compared to Steve Bashir, who was literally governor right before Matt Bevan? He was governor, his term ended in 2015. And on top of that, his son got elected like very soon thereafter uh, to attorney general. So there was like almost no distance between uh, the times they were serving in Kentucky. So I think, you know, uh, either Jason Carter or Michelle Nunn's, uh, you know, uh, lineage had been in office in a significant way. They probably would get a bigger bump. But the other thing I think that is really important here is I think so many people think that the 
ideological uh, identity or the racial and gender identity is the whole story. And I do think those things matter. I think you should be intentional about those things and, you know, making sure that you have a diverse representation. But I think the big difference between, like, let's just use two governor's races, or, or three, rather, you know, Abrams race in 18, Carter's race in 14, and uh, Bashir's race that we just saw, is that, like, Carter, Jason Carter's race, I love Jason, <laughs> he's a very nice guy, but, like, his race was not great in my mind, because they did not have, like, a clear message of, like, why did we need to elect Jason Carter desperately right now, not tomorrow, not later, right now. Like, what will the difference be? Whereas Abrams, who did way better than Jason and almost won and probably would have won if there wasn't some, you know, factors from our Secretary of State uh, at the time, and Bashir, who did win, what did they have? They had clear messages. The stakes were very, very laid out. And, uh, you know, both of them hit on health care very hard. And again, as I mentioned, that was something that was going very, very badly in Kentucky. And so I think the real difference here is having a clear message, having things that you want to accomplish and making a contrast with your opponent. And Abrams and Bashir both did those things, despite being very differently different if you look at ideology or uh, any identity characteristics. And, uh, you know, they did that differently than Jason. And so I think that is what matters, not the, you know, who's your daddy, who's your, your, you know, granddaddy. Right. Well, that's a great point, Luke. Um, The idea that we need to be supporting candidates who actually have a campaign platform and actually have ideas and can execute on them rather than a candidate because of their ideology, because of their uh, gender or racial profile. All of those things are important for the sake of representation. And so I think from a perspective of getting appropriate representation, those things need to be taken into account. But at the same time, we have to make sure that we're running candidates who can actually win and can actually do the job. And I think that that's where you end up losing some of the moderate candidates that I was speaking about, those candidates that can win, that can do the job, that have a plan put together, but because they're not making headlines, they get swept under the rug. I think the only brief aside I would have about Jason's campaign in 2014 compared to where we've landed in 2018 and 2019 is that the issue of health care has really shifted for Democrats. Stacey Abrams was gave a full-throated support of Medicaid expansion. Uh, Andy Bashir uh, campaigned on rolling back some of the harmful changes that were made to Medicaid in Kentucky. And Democrats in 2018 in the midterms in Congress one largely on a message of saying that Republicans were the ones trying to take away health care. Republicans were the ones who wouldn't protect people with pre-existing conditions. That was a much tougher case, even though I believe, if I remember correctly, Jason was a supporter of Medicaid expansion and wanted some of these same ideas. But politically, where that was as a as a political issue, it was a lot tougher for his race five years ago than we see now. Natalie, one of the arguments, though, that I've heard as it relates to bringing younger, more diverse, more progressive candidates into the fold and and centering campaigns around them is that it would be energizing to younger voters, to uh, more diverse groups of voters who are more occasional voters. Do any of these old names like Carter and Nunn, do they mean much to you? or Or do you feel like candidates who maybe you see some of yourself in as, as a young person would be more energizing to you, would be more likely to get you to come out to the polls? You're outing my age, <laughs> but um, <laughs> I think that it's definitely a mix. I think 
going back to what um, you guys were saying about the platform, I think it's more about the energizing factor of what they're standing for, um, what they're actually trying to achieve once they're in office versus necessarily their name. I don't think I would not vote for someone because they had a politically relevant name or came from a politically relevant background, um, but I definitely wouldn't vote for them because of that reason. So I think whether you support a moderate or support a progressive, it really more depends on the um, specific race, where that race is. Um, versus kind of like what the messaging should be for them. So one of the places that we've seen consistent Democratic gains in 2018 and in these off-year elections in 2019 was Democrats improving their performance in the suburbs. Bashir really caught up with Matt Bevin by performing, by overperforming prior Democrats in the suburbs of Cincinnati, Ohio. Those suburbs stretch across the state line into Kentucky. Democrats in the legislature in Virginia performed very well by taking suburban seats around Richmond, Virginia, around Newport News, Virginia. They were able to pick up seats there and close that gap and and take the majority in the Virginia legislature. And even Jim Hood, the Democrat candidate for governor in Mississippi who lost that race, he actually won the the county that makes up the suburbs of Jackson, Mississippi. He actually won that county when four years ago when he ran for attorney general in that state and won with a pretty healthy margin, he actually lost that county despite winning that race. You saw improvements even when Democrats did really well or Democrats underperformed. They were overperforming in the suburbs across the board. Luke, does that say anything to you about the path forward for Georgia Democrats in taking seats in Congress or uh, making a run at taking the state legislature back in the 2020 elections? It, it really does, because, you know, there's been a long going conversation in Georgia, sort of like the one that's been going on in Texas, that oh, the demographics are changing and eventually the state's going to become a Democratic stronghold. And we just keep you know pressing that same bug and keep playing that same record over and over. Uh, what I think that we've come to see is that that's still true and it's still happening and those effects are being felt. But I think the real shift we're seeing is um, if it continues a genuine political realignment where the suburbs, which were arguably like one of the most Republican parts of the country, we're seeing become an incredibly strong Democratic part of the country. And I think, it, you know, it's primarily based off of how the parties have shifted over time. And that's that's why that's the case. Um, so specifically to Georgia now, there's a lot of ground to be made up in the suburbs. Um, they're, you know, a, a Georgia's still very rural, so like it's not going to automatically make Georgia win. I uh, sorry, make Democrats win in Georgia if uh, we do a little bit better in the suburbs. But if we're seeing some of these like huge uh, changes, I think that will matter. Um, and Georgia's being a growing state, and so even if the state house is not flipped in the 2020 cycle, with the growth of the suburbs, the growth of uh, Georgia's cities. I think it does create a formula if this is actually a long-term realignment where we're going to see the suburbs stay, you know, decently democratic, then that is the pathway that Georgia Democrats will follow to the um, state house. Because even if, even if they don't take the state house in 2020 and they aren't part of the redistricting conversation, 
you know, math is a stubborn thing, and arithmetic is stubborn in the sense that, you know, the suburbs and the cities are growing significantly, and so even if the Republicans can gerrymander, there's just going to be more and more districts that have larger parts of cities and suburbs in them, and so it's just going to, their math is going to be harder either way, Um, and so that's really, that's going to really help the party be competitive, um, and there's still growth to be done, taking the lessons of Virginia and Kentucky if Democrats are able to organize on a uh, bigger level because we definitely have not hit our cap of organization. There's much more we could be doing, and we could be doing it earlier. Um, Once we get to the level that Virginia is on, I think uh, statewide we're going to see similar results that we've been seeing in Virginia, and hopefully that starts to trickle down in the same way that it did there. Now, Megan... Winning means that you get to govern. And in Virginia, Democrats there have started to lay out what their agenda would be now that they've taken over the state legislature. And some of the things that piqued my interest that appear to be on their agenda are gun reforms, are an effort to have the state ratify the Equal Rights Amendment, and on passing non-discrimination protections for the LGBTQ community Are there issues there that are starting to bubble up in Virginia that you could see a Georgia Democratic House majority tackling, even if the Democrats in Georgia don't take the Senate, you would probably at least expect to see Democrats in the House lay out what a Democratic or progressive vision for Georgia would be if they had a trifecta in the peach state. What are some of these issues that you think they may tackle based on what we're seeing in Virginia? Oh, yeah, absolutely. All three of those are are great options that I could see happening in Georgia. Um, One that I think specifically will come back up, um, even regardless of if Georgia does not end up with a Democratic uh, majority, I think you'll see the hate crimes bill come back. And I think it will be more successful if there is a Democratic majority. Um, And I think that that's probably going to be a pretty significant priority in Georgia. Um, But all of the previous things that you just mentioned happening in Virginia are definitely on the table for Georgia as well. So let's close here uh, really quickly with a discussion of redistricting. The, the really big prize for Democrats in Virginia is going to be that they will control the entire process for redistricting. Democrats and progressives have rallied around, at least since the 2010 census in that redistricting cycle, have started to rally around nonpartisan redistricting committees, taking the politics out of drawing maps, letting nonpartisan groups draw those maps. But Virginia, they could decide not to do that. They could decide to gerrymander the map to their advantage and solidify Democratic control of that state going forward for at least the next decade Is there any reason for Democrats to change their tune when they get these trifectas and push their advantage on the maps to the limit? Or do we think that uh, Democrats, for the sake of democracy or for the sake of consistency, should try to take politics out of drawing these maps? I I would argue that they should 
be consistent and hold true to democratic values and in both a large D and small D democratic values. And the reason why I say that is Matt Bevan, who has not conceded his race and is trying as hard as he possibly can uh, to get his election uh, thrown to the state legislature, which is still very Republican and have himself installed, uh, you know, in a banana Republic like way uh, to remain as governor. And I, I think Yes, Democrats would get a temporary and significant advantage by gerrymandering in Virginia. They would pick up a lot more state house seats. They would pick up more congressional seats. And that is worth something. That is definitely, if you believe in progressive values, doing that might seem like the right thing to do. But I think the stakes are just too high and that there's too many examples of the Republicans breaking unwritten norms uh, to take control of states or to keep control of states. And so I think the democratic priorities that we've been laying out since we've you know been out of power uh, have been on real reform and on actually codifying some norms that everyone kind of took for granted into law. And I think that is how we get out of the mess we are in politically, not by doubling down on the things we've been railing against. Because there's a lot of people, and I include myself, that, you know, we we pay attention. Like, I think most voters pay attention to the things that people say over and over. And if, you know, the Democrats in Virginia have been uh, hitting on just like how egregious the Republicans' behavior has been, and this gerrymandering is just completely unacceptable. And the other really big element here is in Virginia, in a real actual bipartisan way, they were working on making a nonpartisan redistricting reform you know, bill that they pretty much like almost everyone voted for. And so if the Democrats get a majority and they turn around and just say, yeah, we won that when we were in the minority, but now we're in the majority, we're going to run things. I just think that would make cynics out of a lot of hopeful people, myself included. And so I think um, this is this is the high ground in the moment, but in the long term, it is setting up rules that everyone would want to play by. And, you know, the political tides will change at some point. And I, I think everyone would rather it be fair when that happens. Right. I agree with Luke. And I'll just say for myself, I'm pretty fed up with extreme partisan politics and so by coming in and like just re-gerrymandering the, the districts, that's not okay. If if it's, as Democrats we want to hold ourselves to a moral standard, then the moral standard is doing the right thing overall, not just the right thing for the party. Yeah, I would just agree. Generally, the moral thing to do would be to stay consistent and redistrict in a way that's more fair and even. I think generally just the way with, with how demographics in general are shifting even creating a more fair and balanced um, playing field will, in the long run, help Democrats win um, just by the growth of cities. And the, as we've seen today with um, the wins in Virginia, Kentucky, the growth of um, blue voters in the suburbs as well. All right, y'all. Well, I think that is a good place to leave it for today's podcast. Again, for our listeners, let us know what you think of this shorter format, if you like it better or if you miss getting to spend a whole hour to 90 minutes with us. For Luke and Megan and Natalie Spire, who did wonderful in your debut, Natalie, we're going to leave it there and we will talk to you all again soon. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend. 
and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.